Good evening, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus, episode three. Slight change of plans. Not that you would know, because you didn't know what the plans were in the first place. Uh, this was not supposed to be an entirely solo show for me this week, but things have happened, and so it is. Still got lots to cover on the show this week, though, so don't worry, it will not be dull, I hope. But before we get into the many things I want to discuss this evening, we do have to take a moment to mark the passing of an artist who will be very greatly missed. If comics are not entirely your thing, there's a very good chance you won't have heard of John Paul Leon. To be honest, if comics are your thing, there's a reasonable chance you won't have heard of John Paul Leon. Like most comics artists, he was not a household name, but if you have been into comics in the last 30 years or so, you've almost certainly seen his work. Uh, he started as a professional artist back in the late 80s, uh, when at the age of 16, he began providing illustrations for the TSR magazine Dungeons and Dragons. And he got noticed and made his segue into comics, landing his first proper comics job doing the pencils on the Dark Horse Robocop miniseries Prime Suspect in 1992. Um, that was a comic that I own. I bought that when it first came out, because I'm old, and because I like Robocop, and because it looked great. Now, at that point, John Paul Leon was um, 20, and he was attending the School of Visual Arts in New York, which is an amazing institution. Uh, he was actually taught by people like Will Eisner and Walter Simonson, and do you know what? Comics artists are not necessarily household names, but those two should be, and if you like comics even a little bit, and you don't know who they are, go and look them up. Seriously. Especially Will Eisner. Um, his style was obviously rising. Um, he actually, and I love this, he, he pulled an absolute blinder. Uh, in the following year, 93, uh, he was in his junior year at college, which is the third year, I think, in American money. Um, he was working on the comic Static, uh, which was part of DC's Milestone imprint. Now, not, this didn't just get him in the door at DC. He actually handed that work in as his his coursework for that semester. <laughs> I just think that's brilliant. Because um, how are you going to argue with it? No, you can't. This is not good. This is this would never sell. Um, it's been published by DC Comics, sir. Just brilliant. Just brilliant. He graduated from the SVA, the School of Visual Arts, in 1994. Um, and from that point, he worked for Marvel and DC a lot. Um, he's got credits on Batman, uh, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, you name it, he's drawn it. And he also did work for Warners. He produced the style guides for some of the superhero movies, um, I think Superman Returns was one of was one of his. Batman Returns was one of his. You know, he produced the style guides. Like the characters should look like this. Um, and when you think about how visual those movies are, that's a huge role to play. Most recently, I think the most recent work that people might remember is his work on Batman: Creature of the Night, uh, which was a what well, I still refer to as prestige format. It was just glossy cardstock, square bound issues. Looking at Batman as a more sort of dark spiritual figure, um, out of continuity, Batman isn't Bruce Wayne. He's, I'm not explaining Creature of the Night, it's brilliant, you should read it. And he brought his, his very distinctive visual style to that and pretty much made the book, to be honest. So throughout the last 14 years, um, John Paul Lynn's been battling cancer. There were times when it looked as though he was in full remission and it was going to be fine. There were times when it definitely did not look like that. And on the 1st of May, he was taken from us. I think the best memorial that a man like that can have was the outpouring of grief and love on social media from fans, from comics professionals, from publishers really does seem that everybody loved him. 
and everybody loved his work. If you are unfamiliar with him, uh, you will find some images of his stuff in the show notes uh, over at destinationvenus.co.uk. I suggest you take a look. He was a great artist. It really is as simple as that. The man could tell a story in pictures like nobody's business. So, John Paul Leon, 26th of April, 1972. 1st of May, 2021. He was younger than me, and that's not fair. Okay. Now, on to other stuff. Um, I, I, I've talked about this, if you... Uh, as somebody who checks out the Destination Venus website. I talked about this in uh, yesterday's Wednesday Waffle. Yes, yesterday, if you're listening to this on Thursday, at least. And it's still bugging me. So I'm going to talk about it again. Here's the thing. A couple of weeks ago, there was a meme doing the rounds on the old social medias. Um, I can't quote it exactly because I I didn't bother committing it to memory. Uh, it just started a train of thought. Um, it was along the lines of, Somebody was saying the trouble with new Star Wars fans is that they're all like, oh, I love Ryan Kylo. Sorry, what's a reason? The suggestion being that if a person doesn't know everything about every aspect of a franchise, they're somehow not a real fan. Uh, and if you don't know what a reason is either, there's a link to the, the Wikipedia article in the show notes. Because if you're interested, it's not difficult to find out. But the point is, Joe, you don't need to know who or what Reven is or was to be a Star Wars fan. You just don't. Um, you don't need to have seen the prequels. It genuinely hurts me to say this, but you don't need to have seen the original trilogy. That's episodes four, five and six in New Money. If you like a bit of Star Wars, you like a bit of Star Wars. And that makes you a Star Wars fan. What I don't like about that meme is it's the very opposite of what I think a fan does. Just to dip into my own fandom for a minute, um, I love Batman. Um, I have read pretty much everything that Batman's been in since 1989. And quite a lot of what Batman was in before that, because my goodness, I went on a back issue draw back in 89. And if somebody doesn't know about Ace the Bat-Hound, or who the original Batgirl was, or who the other Batgirls have been, or the origin of the utility belt, or any of that, I am thrilled. Because... I am going to tell him about it, because I love Batman, and I like talking about him, and I like sharing that enthusiasm, and surely that's what fans should be, and we seem to have hit a point in a lot of fandoms, I mean, Star Wars is particularly bad for this, um, Doctor Who is no better, and a lot of the long-running comics have the same problem, we seem to have hit a point where there's a vocal minority of fans, um, and I'm resisting putting that term in heavy air quotes because they are, I can't say they're not true fans because I don't believe such a thing exists. Um, but a vocal minority intent on making everything that they like a closed shop that's not open to outsiders, that's not open to people who aren't already in the know. That's not open to people who aren't like them. Um, another example of this uh, that I also spoke about in the waffle was highlighted to me last week when Comic Book Resources ran an article um, about e-viewing's experience on writing comics. Uh, and there's a link to that article in the show notes as well. Um, if you're unfamiliar with it, who e-viewing is... Um, She's not a household name, I think that's fair to say, uh, certainly not in the UK. Uh, she is uh, an American, she's a distinguished academic, uh, a sociologist, uh, an author, a poet, and an assistant professor at the University of Chicago. 
She also wrote the series Ironheart for Marvel Comics last last year, year before last, probably the year before last now. In fact, my goodness, it might have been 2018. I should look these things up. Her experience was not entirely positive. I think it's fair to say. Now, I was vaguely aware that there was some fan chatter at the time that the book was coming out because, uh, you know, I'm a comics retailer. I spend a lot of time hanging around on um, various comics groups on social media. And I saw some of the reactions that a particular section of the comics readership on those forums had when her Ironheart series was announced. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Ironheart, um, I should probably fill you in on that as well. Uh, Ironheart is the superhero name of a character called Riri Williams, who is uh, a black teenage super genius uh, who was created uh, by the writer Brian Michael Bendis and the artist Mike Diodato. Diodato? Diodato? I never know how to pronounce that. Um, and Riri made her first appearance in comics in Invincible Iron Man issue 7 back in 2016. And she's always been a favourite of mine, partly because her issue of Iron Man, uh, Inf- Invincible Iron Man 7, came out around about the same time that I took over Destination Venus. So it's like she made her debut as I made mine. It was a thing, you know. Now, like Eve Ewing, Riri Williams hails from the city of Chicago. Unlike Ewing, uh, who is much more arts-based. Is sociology and art? It's not. I struggle to call sociology a science. Sorry, sociologists, but I do. But un- so, unlike Ewing, um, Riri is a very gifted engineer who built her own Iron Man-style armour from scratch and took it to the Stark Tower to show Tony Stark. Um, and much as he did with Peter Parker in the movie version of the Marvel Universe, Stark took her under his wing gave us some resources, gave us some training. Um, and for a while, when Tony Stark was mostly dead, um, did the, if you're not familiar with Tony Stark dying, uh, in the comics he died um, at the end of the Civil War II event. Uh, he, he sort of, he was the, the guy who died, that ended his death ended the, the conflict between the superheroes. Um, he didn't stay dead. Nobody stays dead in the Marvel Universe. It just doesn't happen. Um, but while Stark was away being dead, uh, Riri took on the persona of Iron Man for a while. Because, you know, you can do that when you're wearing all-covering armour. Uh, nobody can tell who's in there. Um, and then she forged her own identity as Ironheart. And I think I've mentioned this before on the show. There's a great sequence, which I'll put in the, in the show notes if I can find it, where Riri's trying to come up with her name and the digital consciousness of Tony Stark, who was the AI in her suit, is coming up with names like Iron Maiden and Iron Lady. And, you know, Riri's vetoing them and eventually they hit an Iron Heart. Um, but that's Riri. An immensely talented woman of colour from Chicago. So when they announced that Eve Ewing was going to be the writer for a new Ironheart series, that made sense to me. Okay, Eve Ewing had never written comics before, but she was a proven talent as a writer. Um, And you can't escape just the, the common sensiness Common sensiness? Is that a word? Yes, it is. I just said it. You can't escape the common, common, common sensiness of having a talented woman of colour from Chicago writing the story about a talented woman of colour from Chicago. Um, they're going to have had similar experiences. That's probably going to help. And before anybody emails me, although always feel free to email me, info at destinationvenus.co.uk, I'm not in any way saying that people can only write about characters like themselves. Given that 
just to stay with this example, given that Riri Williams was created by a male Jewish writer from Cleveland and a male Brazilian artist from um, Campina Grande, I think is where he's from in Brazil. Um, it would be absurd to make such an assertion. And, you know, we don't even have to look beyond Riri for seeing how absurd that assertion would be. But equally, there's no way of saying that Eve Ewing and Riri Williams aren't a good fit as writer and character. It clearly, clearly makes sense to put them together. So I was vaguely surprised that there was any negative reaction at all. Now, as I mentioned, Eve Ewing is an academic, a sociologist, who has published a great deal of research on the themes of civil rights and social justice. So let's just say she's no stranger to criticism and controversy, but I don't think she was really expecting any backlash from her Marvel work. Um, she said um, in an interview with the New York Times, yeah, this was the least political thing she'd ever done. She reckoned without that certain section of fandom. Um, in that New York Times interview, you know, she says, you know, suddenly her Twitter notifications were a garbage fire. There were people saying she had no talent, that she was an example of everything that was wrong in the comics industry. Um, there were some coded language, uh, like forced diversity, which we'll come back to. Others were just straight or racist. People sent her images of burning crosses, for goodness sake. So, you know, it wasn't great. Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone who happens to not enjoy Eve Ewing's run on Ironheart is a racist. I'm not suggesting that for a second, because I think that would be ludicrous to suggest. I am going to question pe such people's taste in comics, but that's an entirely personal thing. It's just that I do think some of the people who are objecting to Ewing being hired to do this particular job were being a little bit disingenuous about their reasons for being unhappy with it. We can put the obvious racism, the burning crosses and stuff, and the obvious misogyny to one side. I think we can all agree that if somebody is a racist and a misogynist, they're never going to love a book by a woman of colour about a woman of colour. That's probably something that your average racist misogynist is never going to like. So we'll put all of that criticism to one side. But I think we can look at some of the other objections and just unpack them a little bit. The first one, forced diversity, is a concept that I struggle with. Um, Eve Ewing called it coded language. I think what she means by that is it's people who don't like to see comics about women and comics about people of colour. It's, it's the word forced that I have a problem with. Because who is being forced? Now, speaking personally, for all sorts of reasons, some of them entirely mercenary, I think diversity of choice in media is important. I'm old. I'm nearly 50. When I started reading comics in the 80s, almost everything that you could get hold of easily was about big white men, about as diverse as we got really with the New Mutants and um, Spider-Man, who were young white men, mostly. If women or people of colour appeared back then, they were generally in secondary roles. They were the sidekick, the assistant, the girlfriend, the wife. And yet, yes, there were characters like Luke Cage and uh, Storm from the X-Men and Shang-Chi and the Falcon, these characters did exist, although they were very much in evidence for quite a lot of the time. And they were rare, whereas big overly muscled dudes were 15 a penny, at least. And back then, if you went into a comic shop, most of the people you would see were white boys. Or white young men, possibly. Because kids from other demographics weren't being attracted by all the big white dudes because they, generally speaking, didn't see that there was anything for them in comics at that time. So the fact that things have changed now 
the fact that if you happen to be a woman or a person of colour or a person who identifies as LGBTQIA+, you can now go into in and look at the rack in a comic store and you can find a comic that centres around somebody like you. OK, those comics are out there now. I think that's good, partly because I think art should reflect society and our society is diverse, partly because I'm a retailer and I like that my customer base has expanded. Yes, I said some of my reasons for liking this stuff are entirely mercenary, but nothing's been taken away. It's not that suddenly all the comics are about people of colour and women and people from the LGBTQIA plus community. The big white dudes are still very much there. Thor, Superman, Captain America, Batman, Hawkeye, The Punisher, Shazam. They're all still there. So it's not pie. There's no law that says only like a limited number of comics can exist. And all of these new characters uh, of colour and different or sexuality and different genders are, are somehow using up the slots. That's not how it works. If you if a if you if a person has no interest in the adventures of Riri Ironheart Williams or Kamala Musmarvel Khan or Miles Spider Man Morales or any of the more air quotes, diverse characters, fine. You can still read Batman. You can still read Superman. You can still read Thor and Iron Man. They're all still there. Now, personally, I think if you particularly aren't reading Ms. Marvel or the Miles Morales Spider-Man books, I think you're missing out. But that's up to you. I'm not going to make you buy anything. I'm a retailer, I'm going to try and persuade you to buy them, but I'm not going to make you. I wouldn't, even if I could. And I actually can't. So, forced diversity, it's just not a thing. It's just not. People who make that objection to things seem to me to be saying, I have no interest in this, therefore there is no need for it to exist. And I'm here to tell you, folks, with respect, that is a terrible attitude. Let me use myself as an example. I loathe Mrs. Brown's boys with an absolute passion. It's like fingers down a blackboard. I I don't see the point of the show. I don't think it's funny. I can't be doing with it. I also really hate the Big Bang Theory. I, it's Again, I think it's laughing at us, not with us. I think that some of the stereotypes are deeply offensive. And it, again, it's just nails on the blackboard to me. However, I am aware that both of these shows are incredibly popular. I don't understand why, but I do understand that they are. They're not for me. But who on earth am I to say that they shouldn't exist and that the people who, who love them shouldn't love them? That's not the essence of geek. I'm going to turn over the TV, or possibly even, and here's a radical thought, I'm going to turn off the TV when these shows come on. I can, that's, that's my decision that I can make. I don't have to include these things in my world. But I can't say they shouldn't exist. And the same is true of any comic that you care to name. If you don't have an interest in it, if it's not for you, don't buy it. It's fine. But I don't understand why you'd be upset if other people did. That makes no sense to me. The no talent accusation is perhaps a little harder to re to rebut. I think if you look at Evian's body of work, it's quite a hard accusation to make. But people often use the term no talent when they actually mean they don't like it. And again, to use myself as an example, I've been guilty of this for years literal years, sometimes in print, um, I have written off the artist Rob Liefeld. Uh, and again, you're not familiar with this work, there'll be some examples in the show notes. I've written him off as a talentless hack. 
I do not like his comics work. I think his understanding of anatomy is questionable, and it's not as though the weirdness of the anatomy in his art seems to me to be a matter of style. It looks to me like somebody who can't draw. That's what his comics work looks to me like. However, if you look at some of the non-comics work he's done, Liefeld is clearly far from talentless. Um, he drew a portrait of Congressman John Lewis, uh, which he put out on his social media, which is worth following, by the way. Uh, he's good value, is Rob Liefeld. Um, and it was stunning. It was clearly Liefeld's lines, but it was so different to the work he does in comics. And do you know what? I also have to acknowledge, he's hugely popular. A lot of people love his work. And again, who am I to say that they shouldn't? Who am I to say they're wrong? I don't like it. That's fine. That's on me. So, yeah, I can understand that people who just didn't enjoy Ewing's writing might have just written her off as talentless. I think that's intellectually lazy, but I can't criticise people for it because I have done it too. I try not to do it now. Um, having said that, my, my criticisms, lazy though they were, my criticisms of Lee Files' work in comics was actually based on my personal experience of actually having seen it. Much of the anger aimed at Ewing was posted online before Ironheart issue one hit the stands. And given that that's her only comics work, I can't understand where the accusation that she's talentless at writing comics could possibly have come from. So maybe there was something else behind some of that criticism. I'll leave you to decide what that might have been. But the complaint that really blew my mind, and the one that I, I have in many ways the most difficulty with, was the idea that Ewing wasn't a comics person and that she hadn't paid her dues. I, I, I read a lot of comment online from people who basically said, oh, you know, she'd just been parachuted in um, because they, they wanted a, a high-profile person of colour for the publicity. She's a diversity hire. She hasn't paid her dues. She hasn't worked her way up. Um, and... The implication seemed to be that somebody with no previous experience in comics shouldn't be allowed to write a major book for a major publisher. Um, you know, that there were so many writers who had been paying their dues, who'd, you know, self-published their stuff, they maybe written some backup strips in anthology comics, then got a little deal with a small indie publisher and then finally, finally graduating to the big leagues and working for DC or Marvel and that these people have been passed over. And to that, all I can say is, guys, the world doesn't work like that. There are some careers where you start at the bottom and work your way up, but I suspect there aren't many anymore. Um, and none of those careers are in the creative industries. Give you an example. You've probably heard of the novelist Catherine Cookson. She's one of the best-selling novelists of all time. Her very first novel, her debut novel, was a huge bestseller. Major hit. She published it when she was 46, having had no previous published writing experience. Would we say she'd been parachuted into novels? Would we say that she hadn't paid her dues? No, I certainly wouldn't. I would look at her and say, what kept you? Where have you been? This is great. Actually, I wouldn't because I don't like Catherine Cookson, but I don't like Catherine Cookson's novels, I should say. Never met a woman herself. Um, but, you know, I applaud anybody who can start a career like that late in life. Good on them. Stephen King doesn't have much of a track record in comics. He's got a huge track record in novels, but he doesn't have much of a track record in, not in comics. So should we say Sleeping Beauty shouldn't be on the rack? I don't, I don't, I don't think we should say that. And, you know, I'm not privy to the way Ewing working in Ironheart came about. I don't know whether she'd read Iron Man and 
pitched an idea to Marvel, or whether Marvel reached out to her, or whether there was some combination of the two. It's probably some combination of the two. But either way, it doesn't matter. Let's say Ewing read Invincible Iron Man, liked the character, liked that she was from Chicago, liked that you know she was from a similar background to her, and got in touch with a Marvel editor that she maybe knew and, and pitched a story. That would make sense. And yeah, okay, her reputation as a poet and a writer might have um, opened a few doors that would have been more difficult for other people to open. But that's what having a career is. Let's say it was the other way around. Maybe there was an editor at Marvel who was a fan of Ewing's poetry and thought, yeah, given that her background is similar to Riri's, I'd love to see her take on it. And reached out. Uh, well, that would make sense too. Why wouldn't you do that? If you could. The idea that only people who are already working in comics should get jobs in comics is just crazy to me. Bringing people in with different experiences from different mediums is how you get fresh ideas, and that's always good, so long as they do good work. And I'm going to make the assertion that e-viewing did good work. It sold as well as anything else, which is the only measure publishers care about. And for what it's worth, I loved it. I love the character of Riri. I would have been very upset if the comic had been bad, and it was not. So, I say, stop gatekeeping. We don't need to guard the gates of our fandoms. Throw them open. Let everybody in. The space is limitless. We can't be crowded out. The more people who like the things we like, any aspect of the things we like, even if people like the bits that we don't, the more people who like that stuff, the more of that stuff there will be. And that's got to be good for us. So let's not shut people out. Simon Pegg said, being a geek is about being full on, enthusiastic and unashamed about the things you love. That's it. Let other people do that too. Okay. We should be embracing new people into the fold, not telling them that they can't play in our sandpit because they're doing it wrong or because they've never played in the sandpit before, or because they don't know the names of other people who have previously played in the sandpit. That attitude is absurd. It's a big sandpit. There's room for everyone. Some of them might bring buckets so we can make sandcastles that we'd never made before. I'm pushing this metaphor a little bit too far. Possibly time to move on. But seriously, folks, play nice. Love the stuff you love. Ignore the stuff you don't. It really is. That simple. Is that... Is that the end of the boring preacher bit? Or is there more boring and preacher to come? Well, I'll leave you to make your own minds up, because uh, I am moving on to something else. Have you seen the Marvel Phase 4 trailer? Of course you have. It's everywhere. And it's great. And I, I need to talk about it just for a little bit. Um, I wish that one of the other geeks was with me so that I could talk to them about it, but they're not. So this is just me shouting into the void about how awesome it was. Marvel is good at many, many things. They make great comics. Marvel Studios makes great movies. But my goodness, their trailer game is absolutely on point. If you haven't seen it, it's in the show notes. Just go to destinationvenus.co.uk, click on the blog, look for Geeking Destination Venus Part 3. What they've done to introduce the movies that are coming is make a three-minute trailer, the first minute and a half of which looks back at the movies that we've already had. I suspect there are two reasons for that. The first is that, what with this global pandemic thing slowing production down, they don't have as much footage from the new movies as they would have liked at this point. But also, the legacy of story and goodwill that Marvel's built up over the last 13 years now is far too good to just leave go. And so they look back, but they've done something else really clever. Over the top of clips from the first 
three phases of the Marvel Universe. They've got Stan the Man Lee doing a bit of a voiceover. Now they've taken it from a, a, a bit of video that Stan did not very long before he died about how Marvel is one big family. That man next to you, he's your brother. That woman over there, she's your sister. It's a nice sentiment. And I'm not going to lie, there were a couple of points in that trailer where I kind of teared up a little bit because it completely hit me in the feels. Marvel's good at that. But love it as I did, and love Marvel as I do, We're all one big family. That's an easy claim to make. But is it true? Is that how Marvel really operates? And I, I hate to show you how the sausage is made, but no, not really. It, it doesn't. Two examples. One of which I've spoken of before um, in The Geeks at the Gates, so I won't go into it now in too much depth. But two characters that feature in that trailer. Bucky Barnes, the Winter Soldier, and Rocket Raccoon. Marvel is one big, happy family. Ed Brubaker created the Winter Soldier version of Bucky Barnes. He didn't create Bucky Barnes. But he did create the Winter Soldier persona, which was a radical departure. I mean, he's essentially an entirely different character now, with an entirely different backstory. And Ed Brubaker did that job as work for hire. Now, I, I don't want to get too deeply into all of the contract issues. Uh, it's a complex field, which we may come back to at some point, but not now. So he was paid for writing the comics. And that was then the end of it. Marvel Studios has made a lot of money from The Winter Soldier. Ed Brubaker has not. He has actually made more money in residual payments from the cameo appearance he makes in Captain America The Winter Soldier than he has from actually creating the character of the Winter Soldier. Now, Ed Brubaker has expressed some mild irritation with this. I don't think he thinks it's a massive deal, but it is a point. I suppose, if I was going to be really cynical, you could say that some families do behave like that, but yeah. The reality isn't fitting the image they're trying to project. Rather more seriously, featuring quite heavily in that trailer is Rocket Raccoon. Rocket Raccoon was created by Bill Mantlo. Bill Mantlo will never create another character for Marvel or anybody else because Bill Mantlo, a long time ago now, decades ago now, was hit by a car and he suffered a very serious and very irreversible brain injury. Bill Mantlo now needs 24-hour care. Marvel Comics and Marvel Studios have made a lot of money with Rocket Raccoon. He's a very popular character. Bill Mantlo's brother, who is also his guardian and carer, had to do a GoFundMe to try and raise money to pay for Bill Mantlo's care. Because... American healthcare is expensive, and if you don't have insurance, you've got to pay for it yourself. If you do have insurance, you've got to pay for it yourself often. The amount of money that Bill Mantlo's care costs in a year is a lot of money for a person to find. It's difficult for Bill Mantlo's family, financially, to pay for the care that Bill Mantlo needs. It's a drop in the ocean to the likes of, of Marvel Studios now that they're owned by Disney. Are they legally bound to help Bill Mantlo's family? No. No, no, no. no they have no legal responsibilities about this whatsoever. 
But if they were family, that's what they'd do. And they could. And they haven't. And they won't. One big family? Was a cool trailer, though. We're going to talk on a different day about all the cool things that were in it. Because I just want to sit with that downer just for a second. Because I do think it's important that we always remember never to take media at face value. Brilliant, Reg. Not just boring and preachy, but depressing as well. This is why we can't have nice things. Okay, on to something a little bit more positive. Got some comics of the week for you. I've got two for you this week. Now, the first is absolutely stunning bit of noir called The Good Asian. Uh, it's by the writer, and I'm going to get the last name wrong, but I promise you the first name is right. Doesn't sound like it is, but it is. By the writer Pornsek Pichetshot, I think is how you pronounce it, um, with art by uh, Alexandre Tef. Look, it's spelled T E F E N K G I. Tefenki? I don't know. Um, see, the problem with any ever seeing these names written down is that sometimes they're a nightmare for an, a monoglot English speaker to pronounce. Um, Pontac is interviewed on uh, a recent edition of the Word Balloon podcast, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, because he's an interesting dude. Uh, this is his second um, comic series that he's written. The first one was Infidel, uh, which was one of the scariest haunted house stories I've ever read. Um, this actually explores aspects of his own heritage. He is a he identifies as a Thai American, uh, but he also has Chinese heritage. And The Good Asian is a story that explores an aspect of American racism that is often overlooked. Uh, and that's the treatment of people who were ethnically Chinese. The story is set in the 1930s and follows Edison Hark, uh, a Chinese American detective on the trail of a murderer in 1936 in Chinatown in San Francisco. It's fabulously written. It's very, very dark, as a good noir story should be. Um, there's some great period dialogue. Um, it's utterly gripping, pretty much from the first page. Um, and it's a perspective that you don't often see in detective fiction. Um, so the Asian detectives were all the rage in the 1940s on Charlie Chan and all that kind of thing. Um, but it's an aspect of America that you don't see in the media all that often. And obviously, a, a story that features anti-Chinese prejudice in America is sadly timely now, uh, given the attacks on um, American Asians that are happening in the wake of the Covid nonsense. Um, but it's not a preachy book. It's a straightforward story in which characters behave like characters would have behaved in the 1930s in San Francisco. And Edison Hark's inner conflict of being a police officer at a time when the police are systematically mistreating people like him, and at a time when the government of the United States was institutionally discriminating against people like him, is very real. It's, it's, it's beautifully written, uh, and the art is gloriously atmospheric. I do love a bit of detective fiction, and this is a really good detective comic. I don't think I've read a better one in that noir style. It's up there. It's up there with Criminal for me. 
Uh, and if you've ever read any of the criminal books, you know what high praise that is. So I heartily commend it to you. It is completely fantastic. Okay, now the second of our comics of the week this week is an absolute delight. It's called Eve. Uh, it's by uh, Victor Lavelle and with art by, uh, I'm going to get the surname wrong again, Joe Migayong. Migayong? Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and it's it's a future dystopia. The ice caps have melted. The water levels have risen. Um, but that's not the problem. The problem is when the ice caps melted, a, a pathogen was released, which devastated the human population far more than the rising water ever could. Into that world steps Eve, a mysterious child who may hold the secret to saving the world. But she doesn't really understand where she's come from or who she is. She has memories of a childhood that didn't actually happen. So she has to set out across a drowned America to find her father and to find the seeds that will potentially save everybody. And it's beautiful. It's very calm. It's very methodical storytelling. And the character of Eve, I have fallen in love with in the first 21 pages of her story. She's got a cool sidekick in the shape of a, ro a, a slightly smart-mouthed robot teddy bear. And the world building is subtle, but profound. It's a world I can believe in. If it reminds me of anything, it reminds me very much of early issues of Animosity, which is another comic that I absolutely adore and which I heartily recommend. It's got that same, this could happen if this happened. You know, once, once we've got over the premise in animosity, it's all the animals suddenly start to talk. And here it's that the, 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 the sea levels have risen and humanity's been all but wiped out by disease. Once you accept those premises, if that happened, then this story is pretty much what would happen. And so it's realistic in a way that a lot of dystopian stories are not. I'm really looking forward to following Eve's journey and finding out who she is. And so those are our Geeking with Destination Venus comics of the week this week. I really should sort out a jingle for this segment. I do, however, have a jingle for this one. I get two items of news that I'm bringing to you in this week's Geeky News section. The first is that Bond villain Elon Musk's Starship SN15 test flight was successful. He flew the thing up, but he didn't. He doesn't actually do these things. His engineers do these things. Um, but SpaceX engineers flew the rocket up and then brought it back down and landed it vertically perfectly without it blowing up or anything. That's the first time SpaceX has successfully done this with one of their Starship rockets. And it's significant because Starship is a rocket that's going to do a couple of things. The first thing it's going to do is take people back to the moon, which is great. Big fan of that. Kind of sad that we haven't been going to the moon consistently for years, but there you go. People just don't ask me about these areas of policy. I don't know why. But much more important than that, Starship is the rocket that will probably be the, the grandparent, at least, of the rockets that take us to Mars. 
it's good for both things because in many ways as an engineering solution for flying stuff into space and bringing it back to earth spacex's rockets are silly the cool thing about all of spacex's rockets um is that they're reusable and they return to earth like thunderbird 3 in that they land vertically back on the launch pad now it looks unbelievably cool it does but in terms of coming back to earth it's stupid because it uses a lot of fuel and it's an, there's an inherent risk in landing a rocket vehicle that still has loads of fuel in it and on earth you don't need to because we have an atmosphere so it's perfectly easy to do what NASA did with the Space Shuttle returnable boosters um, and indeed um, the Apollo, Gemini and Mercury spacecraft and land them via parachute. That's perfectly easy to do. Uh, it's cheap, it's reliable and parachutes hardly ever blow up. Whereas if you've watched the earlier Starship test flights, um, rockets blow up a lot if they've got fuel in them. Or you can do what NASA did with the space shuttle. You can put wings on your craft and you can fly, glide down through the atmosphere. Now, the space shuttle actually flew like a brick, but it did fly. Um, and again, wings are reliable. The physics behind them always works. And again, wings almost never blow up. And of course, you can compromise and do both of those things uh, as NASA would have done with uh, the Blue Gemini project if they'd run with it, uh, which is to have a parachute that's steerable and, and acts like a, like a like a modern skydiver's parachute can be can be steered. You can do that uh, also with a parachute on a spacecraft as you parachute through the atmosphere. So why does Elon Musk, apart from the fact that it looks cool and Musk is very motivated by what looks cool, Apart from that, why does Elon Musk insist on doing the actually quite difficult job of landing his rockets vertically on their tails using loads of fuel? Why does he risk the explosions and the inherent dangers of that? He's a smart guy. You know, he understands how wings work. He understands how parachutes work. So why? Well, because there's no atmosphere on the moon and there's... No atmosphere on well, there's no atmosphere to speak of on Mars. We'll come to that. Um, so being able to, to to use retro rockets to land, as NASA did with the lunar landers uh, back in the 60s, is hugely important. You can use parachutes on Mars, but you really want to wouldn't want to trust a parachute with a human on the end of it on Mars. There's not enough atmosphere to slow you down, and there's no atmosphere on the moon. So SpaceX's rockets are born out of Musk's obsession with going to Mars, which is why it's going to be his stuff that almost certainly takes us there, because nobody else is thinking along, along those lines. Uh, so if you want to see the SpaceX launch of, SN, of SN15, uh, I'll chuck a link to it in the, in the show notes. It really does look cool. I've got all kinds of problems with Elon Musk. Um, I've got all kinds of problems with SpaceX, to be honest. Uh, but their rockets are undeniably cool and their engineering is undeniably sound. Uh, so there's that. And in sort of related news, um, there's news this week of um, glaciers on Mars that could supply water to human explorers. And this is important because Mars is really dry. And if you look at any of the pictures, from any of the thousands of rovers, I'm exaggerating, but there's a lot of rovers up there. Um, it looks like an arid desert. And they reckon it's about a thousand times drier than the driest places on Earth. And that's, that's pretty dry. But in the mid-latitude region known as uh, Arcadia, Plani Plani Arcadia Planitia, I'm having a real problem with pronunciation this week. I really am. Um, the 
the Jet Propulsion Laboratory thinks that it's found signs of glaciers and glacial activity. That could provide water to a human settlement. Um, and that's really important because we can't take all the water we need with us when we go to Mars. So knowing that there is a place where there is frozen water ice that we can reliably find makes the survival of a Mars mission and therefore the viability of a Mars mission so much more likely. And I know what some of you are thinking. Why are we going to Mars? What a waste of money. Why are we going to the moon? What a waste of money. Well, as I've said before, on this show, I think, we explore. That's what humans do. That's what makes us human. And also, we don't put all our eggs in one basket. At the moment, as a species, that's what we're doing. We're only one major asteroid strike away from extinction. Just ask the dinosaurs. It's not about going to other worlds because we've wrecked this one. It's about going to other worlds because they're there, but also because something that's nothing to do with us could happen to this one. And then we're gone. And I don't think I want that. That is our geeky science for this week. And with that, suddenly, here we are. It's very nearly the end of the hour, and it's very nearly time for me to go. Before I do, just a couple of quick, quick things. It's May! And that means this month, Destination Venus can reopen. Uh, the Everyman Cinema, in which we are based, reopens on Monday the 17th of May, and therefore, so do we. Uh, it's been a long time, guys. Um, I've actually not set foot on in the premises since the 23rd of December last year. Was not expecting to be away for this long. We have just about made it by the skin of our teeth, and uh, we are so looking forward to inviting everybody back. Suitably socially distanced and masked, of course. Um, I'd also just like to point out that our wonderful hosts at the Everyman Cinema are reopening on Monday the 17th of May, and if you go to the Everyman's website, you can actually book tickets to go and see a movie in a theatre on a big screen. You've not been able to do that since last year either, and do you know what? I'm really looking forward to doing that too. So, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, and I really do mean this. I've said this a couple of times already, but I'm going to keep saying it. Thank you so much to everyone who supported Destys through our period of enforced closure. Um, and thank you everyone who's been supporting all of Harrogate's local businesses um, through lockdown and beyond. We don't exist without you. It really is that simple. We simply don't exist without you. And I don't think we tell you enough how much we appreciate you. So there you go. We do. Okay. We will leave it there. Thank you very, very much for your kind attention this week. We will be back next week um, with hopefully an interview with a local comics writer uh, who I was hoping to speak to this week, but um, schedules and stuff. Uh, so yeah, next week, hopefully you won't just have to listen to me drone on for the, for the full 60 minutes. Uh, but until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe, but above all else, stay geeky. Until the next time, we all meet up to go geeking. The only things we don't have room for are hatred, intolerance, and bigotry.